Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, it appears NAFTA is almost at the finish line. The Conservatives are calling on the government to fix Canada-China relations as trials for the two Canadians, the two Michaels, are being finalized. It's all happening on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. NAFTA appears to be uh, so close we can we can see it. <laughs> uh, from ratification, clearing the way for implementation. Where are we now? What does it all mean? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Root School of Business at McMaster University. And he is with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Glad to be here, Scott. So new information coming out this morning in regard to NAFTA. What is exactly happening now? What is significant about this morning? Well, uh, let me come at this in a couple of different ways. Uh, late yesterday, Christian Freeland uh, hopped on a plane and flew to Mexico. Uh, the Mexican Senate on Sunday had been given some new language, which they had seemed to endorse. And so she was in there in case there were any last-minute negotiations. Canada could say yes or no live. And it appears, all things being equal, that this has happened. Now, the announcement from Mexico hasn't happened just yet. It should happen within the hour. Uh, a little three-party shaking of hands with Robert Lighthizer. That's the American negotiator, Christian Freeland, on behalf of Canada, and a Mexican person. But all eyes shifted to Washington this morning. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, uh, first started with some uh, 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 letters of impeachment around Donald Trump. And then after she finished that press conference, she held another press conference immediately after to say, oh, yes, by the way, we now have a deal. And the assumption is that if the Democrats in the House say they're happy, then everyone else is going to be happy. Uh, and I just think it's fascinating. Before the three parties announced they had a deal, if Nancy Pelosi thinks it must be a deal, then I guess it must be a deal. So there's a lot of backpacking uh, or handling slapping going on in Washington today. So uh, what about the timing of all this? You mentioned that going from one press conference to another, right. uh, is there any significance that both of this is ha- all of this is happening at the same time? Well, she was asked that question directly. Is this coincidental? And she, she said, and as did, by the way, uh, uh, Representative Neal, he chairs the Ways and Means Committee in Washington. He says, you know, you strike when the iron's hot. This was all coming together at this time, and it's just coincidental. It's not completely coincidental because the House of Representatives in the United States rises or adjourns, if you want another word, on Friday for their Christmas break and won't be back until nearly the end of January. So if there's to be legislative action, it really had to happen over these next two, three, four days. And even now, Speaker Pelosi was asked, okay, you say you have a deal. When is the vote going to happen? And she says, well, we don't know. So I'm not clear that they'll actually have a vote in the House of Representatives between now and Friday. They may actually wait to do it until uh, late January. But the theory is if the Speaker says they've got the votes, they've got the votes, and now the actual vote is just a technicality. In, in Ottawa, same kind of a problem. Uh, the way we do it in the parliamentary system is a bill has to be read and approved three times. You hear about the first reading, the second reading, the third reading. Uh, our house also rises on Friday for Christmas break, although the expectation is they'll be back around the middle of January. Uh, it's not clear to me there will be even a first reading of this, and if there is a first reading, will it pass? And I don't want to make too much of this, but as you know, Justin Trudeau has a minority parliament. He needs the support of one other group. 
NAFTA, or the new NAFTA, USMCA, has a couple of clauses that the Bloc Québécois says they don't like because they, they don't help Quebec farmers. The NDP say they have some clauses they're not overly fond of. Now, you would think the Conservatives, who are pro-free traders, they would vote for it, but are they prepared to give Justin Trudeau a victory? I, I, so, I, you know, I think we're going to watch this over the next three or four days. We may not get a vote in either Washington or Ottawa before they rise for Christmas. So would the, as far as the timing goes, does that, is that advantage to the president or to the Democrats? Well, I'm going to say both. Um, Trump came in saying, look, it's the economy, stupid, elect me. I'm a big economy person. He, he began by giving some tax cuts, and those tax cuts to the business community have certainly seen the stock markets rise. The American economy has grown, and not at a fast pace, but at a reasonable pace during this time period. But on the other hand, he also said, I'm the deal maker. And he really hasn't made any other deals other than this free trade agreement with, with Canada and Mexico. So when he had the grip and grin in November of 2018 with Justin Trudeau and Lopez Obrador, it looked like this was going to be the hallmark of his uh, presidency, but it bogged down, and for a year nothing has happened. He really wants this to happen going into the 2020 primary season and election season. And then the Democrats, they were accused of being so focused on impeachment that they weren't prepared to do any other legislation at all. They're putting the country's you know, uh, economy at risk by not being better about all this. So they've come along, and this is why they've approved it. They, too, want to get this done before the primary season. But the way they're spinning the story is, well, thank God we took another look at it because we made some changes to USMCA which make the deal better for the average person, and thank goodness we're there. So both are going to try to spin this as a victory. Does NAFTA success um, uh, override the impeachment, uh, the impeachment hearings? Does that does that uh, do they cancel each other out? Is it a wash? What has the what has uh, Americans' attention? Yeah. So here's the funny thing about impeachment. I think the average Canadian doesn't understand impeachment or the American system of impeachment. I want to take you back to another president, a fellow by the name of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was actually impeached by the House of Representatives. Now, when you impeach a president, what you say is, I believe this person has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. The, the House then votes on the impeachment, and then they list the articles of impeachment. This is the crimes we think they're guilty of. But when the House impeaches, it doesn't actually mean the person is removed from office. What next happens is a trial in the Senate. And in the case of Clinton, the trial in the Senate found him not guilty. So even though he was impeached by the House, the Senate said, no, we don't think he did commit those high crimes and misdemeanors, and that's why he was able to continue as president. I would remind you, in the United States, the House is democratically controlled, but the Senate is Republican-controlled, which is the same thing Mr. Trump is. So if a hearing is held in the Senate... I think it's highly likely they will also find him not guilty. And by the time we get to, I don't know, the party conventions next summer, July, August, whenever they schedule them, this will all be in the rearview mirror. So I think NAFTA is the longer live story here. It'll be around longer, has bigger legs. The impeachment, to me, is a straw dog. They get a victory, but at what cost? Because the Senate isn't going to uphold it and nothing's really going to change. Those people who love Trump will continue to love him. Any reason to think that uh, the Senate will uh, try to debunk what has been said so far? Are they going to, do you think, keep this really short and sweet and get it over with? 
I think short and sweet. Now, Lindsey Graham, who's a Republican senator, Republican senator, has suggested that on the very first day of the trial, he's going to uh, ask for it to be adjourned. That there's nothing, nothing of substance here at all. I doubt that will happen. I think they have to be seen by the public as going through the motions. They can't be too partisan too quickly. But I think it'll be short and sweet, and then the vote will be held, and it'll come exactly along party lines. Uh, just to contrast this again with a third president, Mr. Nixon, who resigned from office, he never did get impeached by the House. But why he resigned was he was told that if the House held the vote, they would likely impeach him. And then when the Senate held the trial, they'd likely convict him. And so given that the odds were stacked against him, he decided for the sake of the presidency to resign. In the case of Clinton, he didn't think it was going to happen. And Trump doesn't think it's going to happen. So uh, this is more of a, almost like a, a circus, uh, we're going through the motions, but nothing of substance will come from it. Whereas USMCA, or however you want to call it, Kuzma, Muska, whatever you want to call it, it has far bigger reaching effects, uh, and it's far more important. Uh, it, it's a 16-year deal, renewable for 16 years more. That takes us almost to the year 2050. So it's much more significant policy, and that's why I think it will be the bigger story as we head into 2020. You talked about that past signing, and we all remember that with uh, all three of the leaders uh, together and shaking hands and getting out the big Sharpie and such, and yep. and then the, it bogged down, as you say. Yep. Is there any reason to think the same thing isn't happening here? You questioned whether uh, or, or not this is uh, a go all the way through. There still could be some sticking points along oh, yeah. the way. So. When would this become official? What, what what steps are still ahead of us here? It's the votes. We need we need to see the House vote, and then of course the Senate will vote. Now the assumption has always been that if the House likes it, the Senate will get behind it because they want Trump to succeed. So that has always been considered the sticking point in the United States. In Canada, we didn't think it was a sticking point until the results of the election in October, right. when Justin had a minority. It's not going to be as easy. I can imagine any number of scenarios. Uh, for instance, I can imagine one of the parties holding their nose and saying, well, I'm doing this for the best of Canada. I can also imagine parties saying to some of their members, uh, today when we're having that vote, I think you have flu, don't you? You shouldn't be there. And allowing the Liberals to get it passed with them not actually supporting, but just when you do the count of hands that are up and hands that aren't there, it might be enough to squeak through. I doubt anyone wants to defeat this. I don't think they want to be the party in Ottawa that defeats this, but whether they want to get behind Justin, then that gives them a problem whenever this minority government's term expires. Uh, longer this takes to sign, the harder it gets to do so? Well, that was what would have been my argument in over this last year, that we had lost so much momentum since November of 2018. Would this ever appear on the legislative calendar in the United States? I, again, I can't exactly explain why Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have suddenly got this burst of energy on this with just days left in their calendar in, in 2019. But again, let's just, you know, the winds are blowing in the right direction. Let's say hallelujah. I think there's enough momentum now that uh, we're likely going to see another one of those three amigos moments, probably in late January with a signing most likely at the White House, as you say, with the big Sharpie and hands all around gripping and grinning. <clears throat> but this really had nothing to do with those three people. It very much was Nancy Pelosi. And also, oddly enough, the organized labor movement in the United States, they had some problems with the 
uh, NAFTA 2.0, and they've now made their changes. They were concerned that uh, what were the enforcement clauses for some of the environmental issues? What were the enforcement clauses around some of the organized labor issues? They now feel they've got enough in there that they can back it. So I, I think it is smooth sailing. I just can't give you the date by which all of this will be uh, behind us, and we'll see that uh, Three Amigos moment. And in Canadian politics, as far as the opposition, is it not too early to start talking about bringing down a government anyway? And as you mentioned, is this the is this what you want to use to do that? Right. Uh, is it too early? No, it's never too early. I, I'd remind you that famously, uh, Pierre Trudeau, Justin's father, lost to Joe Clark in a round, I think it was 1980, don't quote me exactly on the year, uh, and Joe Clark brought in a very difficult budget, and thinking that the liberals, because they were in disarray and, and Trudeau was resigning, there'd be no way they could defeat it, and by God, they did defeat it. Trudeau came back and then turned around in the next uh, snap election led to a majority. Hmm. So things can happen. Now, that would require Andrew Scheer to do an awful lot of calculus. And does he feel there's enough, uh, enough steam there? Today, for instance, in Ottawa, Jason Kenney, the premier of Alberta, is meeting with Justin Trudeau. And again, if, if he suddenly comes out the way Doug Ford did, a little more conciliatory, a little more I'm willing to work with this fellow, then that makes it harder for Andrew Scheer. On the other hand, if Jason takes a really hard line and reinforces that anti-government sentiment, he might choose to pull the plug. But, you know, why would you argue this? I think you'd be much better off if you had a, a budget in which there was some spending that was allocated or something. And that's why I've got to save the Canadian people from that spending. I don't think anyone needs to be saved from this NAFTA 2.0. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. It appears NAFTA is almost to the finish line, but we'll believe that when we see it. Uh, Marvin, as always, thanks so much uh, for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots of chatter in regard to what is happening south of the border, in regard to uh, impeachment charges and such. And oddly enough, we're having this discussion as the final details. And and I guess it's uh, been uh, been announced that the NAFTA is now very close to the finish line. Uh, fascinating that all of this is happening at, at one time. Let's bring in Jared Yates Sexton, political commentator and uh, American author of The People Who Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, A Story of American Rage, and he is with us now. Jared, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me, Scott. How much of that rage is increasing today with impeachment talks and what is going on as uh, the president moves co- closer towards this? Uh Today is another one of those benchmark days. Uh, We're getting ready to see only the third American president to ever be impeached. And we are living in different realities on on each side of the political spectrum. Um, There's a large swath of Americans, uh, liberals, independents, a lot of Republicans who believe that what this president has done um, is not just deserving of impeachment, but deserving to be he deserves to be removed from office. And in the Republican Party, which is playing uh, a lot of political one-upsmanship and a lot of trench warfare tactics here, have basically staked their claim on an alternate reality that has nothing to do with the facts as they are. Um, It's a really divided, partisan time right now. And with each new day, we're just seeing it grow wider. Any reason to see this ending beyond what everyone is predicting, and that is that he'll be impeached, the Don, uh, Donald Trump will be impeached in the House and then will uh, uh, be exonerated in 
in the Senate. Is there something different going to happen in the Senate that perhaps we're not ready for, we're not prepared for, we don't know about yet? Uh, is there some sort of a self-inflicted wound coming here? Otherwise, we just come out the other end with uh, the Senate's version of all this and, and just throwing it out. Will they waste time on this, trying to debunk what has already been said, or will they just try to get through this as quickly as possible? I think the smart money's on the Senate acquitting Trump, but there's also a lot happening behind the scenes. Uh, out, out in public, Republicans are a unified force, but in conversations I've had with Republican representatives and uh, their staffs, a lot of them will tell you that they're very, very troubled by what Donald Trump did, and they do believe that he should be removed from office. Um, when this story finally comes out, and of course Trump is unable to help himself, and every single day he sort of buries himself a little bit deeper in this thing, Depending on how he acts or surrogates act or, or how this uh, impeachment battle continues, um, there's always a possibility that something could shift. Again, the smart money is on acquittal, but um, there's been a lot of talk behind the scenes and a lot of discussions about people who understand that this is a serious crime. So there's always hope that uh, some, some consciences will, will come into this. What about the timing with the NAFTA announcements uh, today? And it looks like things uh, are, are finally getting close to the finish line there. What about the timing of all of this on both parts for both the Republicans and the Democrats? Well, with Democrats, uh, it's, it's a PR uh, move to say that while they're impeaching a president, they can still work with him. Um, one of the big critiques that Trump has had and, and Republicans as well, has been that the Democrats have been so focused on removing him from office that they've been a do-nothing Congress. Um, this is a PR move to say we can go ahead and walk and chew gum at the same time, although it should raise some eyebrows, the idea that the Democrats are in essence saying that the president is uh, not qualified to be in office and should be removed, and yet working with him on this. There, there's a lot of uh, scratching the head and rubbing the belly at the same time on this that is, uh, I think, a little puzzling for some people, but it, it's definitely a message being sent. So is it advantage Republican or Democrat for this, or does it depend on who you ask, obviously? Well, in these trade deals, for the most part, it's been seen as a bipartisan affair. Um, in the past, whenever America has sort of worked for international trade deals, it, it's always sort of gone both Democrat and Republican. It's the trade deals aren't something that the Democrats and Republicans usually fight about. Um, you'll mostly hear about them in uh, presidential primaries and things like that. But for the most part, economically, they're on the same uh, the same page. So this is just one of those political moments where I think both sides see it as uh, advanta- advantageous to go ahead and throw their lot behind the, the deal. Uh, assuming, and again, anything can happen in this presidency, we've certainly seen that, but assuming it all ends as you have just predicted, uh, and, and, and through the, through the house and the Senate, um, how does that set the stage for the next election? Who does the advantage go to, or is it just to the point now where people are just sort of being reconfirmed what they already know? Yeah, and this is a, a really brutal thing to talk about, because if he is acquitted, as everyone expects, then it is giving a green light to um, presidents and politicians to reach to uh, other nations to interfere in sovereign elections, free and fair elections. Um, the idea that this could happen and then 2020 would happen, I, I think it's going to undermine a lot of confidence in the system, particularly as um, polls are already showing that a majority of Americans do believe what he has done is impeachable and a crime. Um, it, it's 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 hard to see how this isn't going to just um, firm up the partisan divisions that we already have. I think Democrats are already decided how they feel about it. Republicans are already decided how they're feeling about it. 
Um, and in a lot of ways, I think the 2020 election, as much as it will be free and fair, will be um, a decision that Americans are going to come to that is going to be predicated on how they feel about Donald Trump and his actions. Uh, there's always been divisiveness in American politics. Um, you know, go back to the Civil War days and such, and there, there's always been divisiveness. I mean, that's just the, the, the facts of a large country. We're in the same predicament in, in some cases. Um, is, this the mo- is this the most divided Americans have been in an awfully long time? Well, I, I mean, it, it took about 12 years for American parties to develop and start calling each other traitors to the nation. So this has been a, a pretty regular factor in American politics. But what's different now is that obviously we in this mass media age with the technology that we have in social media and cable news and all of that, um, we're more entrenched in our realities based on that technology. So it is a little bit different in terms of how it's being prosecuted out. But we have seen time and again when America has been in crisis, whether or not it was at the turn of the 19th century or um, you know later on with the Civil War, there are these moments where America has always divided up and, and it becomes very, very dangerous. And, and we keep seeing times where the press and technology and, and of the age sort of drives us even further apart. So this is a really dangerous moment. But uh, it is part of the American character and part of the American tradition. Hmm. Uh, Jared Yates Sexton has been with us, political commentator, author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, A Story of American Rage. Jared, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Hey, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Some uh, developments in regard to uh, Canada-China relations uh, on a couple of fronts. Uh, First, uh, very disturbing uh, headline now from the Canadian press. China hints at trials for detained Canadians as pressure to release... Uh, the Huawei CFO is mounting. China is hinting at upcoming trials for two Canadian citizens held for a year on vague national security charges in what is widely believed to be an attempt to pressure Canada to release uh, the Huawei CFO. A foreign minister, a foreign minister spokesperson said uh, on Tuesday that the cases of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spaver have been transferred to prosecutors for review and prosecution in accordance with the law. Such tri- uh, trials are virtually carried out behind closed doors and convictions are virtually assured. Uh, that on the heels of uh, the Conservatives calling on the Liberals to create a special committee on Canada-China relations. To talk more about all of this, Aaron O'Toole is with us, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs and the MP for Durham, uh, uh, sorry, the Conservative MP for Durham, and is with us now. Thanks for the time, Aaron. Much appreciated. Glad to be with you, Scott. So, uh, first of all, your thoughts on uh, on the headlines of the day in regard to the two Michaels, China hinting at trials uh, for these two detained Canadians. Uh, is this justice in your mind, or is this added pressure to uh, try to get Canada to release the Huawei CFO? Uh, well, there is no justice in China. Uh, I think we have to look at that. We can't compare it to our situation in Canada at all. I think all Canadians, doesn't matter political bent, want to see the two Michaels uh, return home to Canada as quickly as possible. You introduced it perfectly. These were a, a retaliatory set of arrests after Canada complied with a lawful extradition arrest of a of a business executive, a Huawei CFO, and so it was. It was a diplomatic hostage taking. Some have called it, and it's unfair to those citizens. So. We have a, a situation with China where the relationship has become very, very complex. Uh, you know, our trade relations and, and citizens are at risk. 
We have national security considerations. There's a whole range of things that we feel could best be examined by a parliamentary committee that can be done in secret at times to make sure sensitive information about cyber and other issues can be examined. And we can make sure that the government's putting the best foot forward to get our citizens home. So that's what we're arguing for today in Ottawa. So talk a little bit more about this committee. Uh, what's the purpose? How is this going to help things? How will the, especially with this very complex problem? Well, the Trudeau government has had a year of this acute crisis with our citizens impacted. There's been a couple of other Canadian citizens sentenced to, to death in, in Chinese uh, courts. Uh, one had a 15-year sentence turned into a death sentence. There's been canola, beef, pork disruptions, uh, travel, and other issues. Um, there's a whole range of issues we have with China. And the government's been very reluctant to talk about Huawei being in the 5G network because of security concerns that many of our allies in the Five Eyes group of, of security allies have. So there's so many of these trade, consular, national security defense uh, issues. China is now considering itself a, a near-Arctic state and has interests in the Arctic, including ours. So I think Parliament should look at the evolving role of China in global affairs and make sure that Canada can effectively balance off the important economic aspects of China, but also make sure we're not sacrificing our values, our commitment to the rule of the law, um, standing up for issues, whether it's uh, our citizens and human rights in Hong Kong or the situation with the Uyghurs. Uh, a special committee will allow all aspects of this relationship to be examined and for us to take the politics out of it uh, when it goes in camera on sensitive issues. Uh, do you think that... Um the reason that we haven't uh, confirmed or 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 not the whole 5G question, the whole 5G debate, is because the two Michaels are still in uh, captivity. I mean, if uh, you make a decision like that now, uh, it could be uh, it could be fatal for them in some form. Um, do you think that's the reason that that they seem to be uh, dragging their feet on 5G is because the two Michaels are in captivity? Uh, that could be. You know, the government has not articulated a reason why. Certainly, Andrew Scheer and our party, the Conservatives, uh, prior to the arrest of the Canadians, had said that Huawei should not be part of our 5G critical infrastructure. you got to think, Scott, in the future, the Internet of Things, where our, from our power plants to, <laughs> to vehicles, could be on a 5G network. Um, you have to have absolute certainty that there is no ability to infiltrate or impact that because our, our, our modern economy will be built upon it. So that's why many of our allies uh, have said that Huawei can't build components in that. We could have moved in lockstep with uh, our 5i allies so that China couldn't isolate people. That's what we should have done. The Trudeau government didn't do that. Then the arrest of the citizens complicated it further. Uh, these are just a few of the challenging aspects of the China relationship and why I think rather than us having three weeks of steady questions on everything from human rights to Hong Kong to South China Sea Islands, a whole range of things, we form a specialized parliamentary committee. Other countries have done a similar approach to this so that we can really look at, at both the challenges and profound, uh, you know, the opportunities that exist with China too. How has our view of China changed? I mean, you look back even uh, a few years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, China was very much the golden goose. Uh, it was about impressing them. It was about courting them. It was about trying to uh, build that relationship, build that trust. 
and, and now it seems that um, you know it's certainly a one-sided relationship. How is our how is our perception of doing business with China changed? It has changed, and that's a great question, Scott, because China has changed. This is not the China of 20 years ago and the Team Canada visits and, and China was opening up. And, and this is a China that has actually taken major steps back on human rights, major steps back in terms of the Communist Party itself, managing all aspects of citizens' life. There's a surveillance state. They've interned a million uh, uh, Muslim Uyghurs in in a remote part of their country for so-called re-education. Um, even their companies, like Huawei, the 19th People's Congress in, in just a few years ago, made it that all senior executives have to be part of the Communist Party and the company has to fulfill the wishes of the state. So these companies are not like our Bell and Telus and then our, you know, Rogers are independent large corporations. These are arms of the Chinese state because the state has mandated that. So as China has regressed in this way, I think the Western world has to work together to to make sure there's a rules-based approach that we speak up as a united front and show China that if it wants to be the the world player and, and leader, it wants to be. It has to do that in a rules-based, fair, respectful of human rights context. What are the chances of uh, this committee happening that you're proposing? Uh, Great question. This will be the first real test, Scott, of the minority parliament. I think we're going to win the vote. Uh, I've heard that we have support from the NDP, from the Bloc, potentially the Greens. I've said, why would the Liberals not want an all-party committee that would actually take this? Some of it would be in camera, so they could avoid difficult questions in the House. Why would the Liberals not want this other than if they don't want their own decisions to be scrutinized? Um, I think it will pass. I think we'll we'll stand this up in January. And our hope is that it it provides a report to Parliament uh, next fall, so it would end in in June. So it would be a time-limited committee, but it would be able to call the Prime Minister, our Ambassador, Ambassador Barton, for an up-to-date report on China. Parliament deserves the ability to hear what the government is doing and to assess whether we're doing our best efforts for not only our citizens, but the overall complex relationship we have with modern China. Aaron O'Toole has been with us, Shadow Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Conservative MP for Durham. The Conservatives calling on the government to uh, work towards Canada-China relations by creating a special uh, committee to oversee uh, the relationship. Aaron, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for covering this, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking about Canada-China relations and uh, China now hinting at trials for the two detained Canadians, the two Michaels, as pressure to release the Huawei CFO. To talk more about all of this, Gordon, uh, Gordon Holden is with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta, and is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. It's a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. So why are we hearing of these charges now? How do you explain the timing of this? Well, I think it's the the Chinese are well aware of the anniversary. Uh, They have seen the statement from our foreign minister, Minister Champagne, uh, complaining about the fact that they have no access to lawyers, etc. So this is, I think, a signal from the Chinese foreign ministry saying, yes, their cases are moving along. Um, They're reaching a, a stage where 
prosecution is a possibility, but the Chinese have taken a long time, a full year to get to this point. It's not crystal clear yet whether they're uh, on, a, on a firm, straightway path to a trial, uh, or there are still options um, for release, uh, and I think the latter is more likely. However, open to release if Madame Meng's case is disposed of in accordance with Chinese wishes. So it's it's really a, a bit of a dance here. It's still not clear uh, where we're going to be a few months from now. Uh, how much of this is a dance or just justice moving forward? Because many have said when such trials are usually carried out, uh, they are, are so behind closed doors and conv- uh, convictions are virtually uh, assured. So is this them turning up the heat or quite the opposite, uh, turning it down a bit and saying, no, no, things are progressing and there's a chance that they could get out? Because obviously, from what we hear, when it gets to this stage, it, it's pretty bleak. That's true. I mean, trials, you're quite right, are normally held, particularly ones involving state security, behind closed doors without um, outside participants, usually without any embassy uh, presence. There would be a lawyer. He's not yet at that stage. But my reading between the lines of the Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson's comments is that uh, the Chinese are not playing this as hard or as tough as they might Uh, My sense is some of the rhetoric aimed at at Canada has been toned down in recent months. I believe they still want to have a negotiated solution. You may have seen a comment from the founder of of Huawei, the the father of Madame Meng, uh, that they might move some of their operations out of the United States into Canada. I think we're seeing uh, seeing a combination of, of carrots and sticks. Yes, it's true the Chinese embassy in Ottawa has taken a reasonably tough line publicly, but I think they, the Chinese side, would love to have a solution. The problem is their idea of a solution must involve Madame Meng being being freed. Right, and and obviously that's uh, you know the turn. It appears that the hearing is going to continue at this point, and that would not be the case. Uh, so are, are are the Chinese hearing? Um, the concerns of Canadians regarding the two Michaels, or again, are they more concerned about uh, about uh, the CFO? I think the answer to that is pretty straightforward. They yeah. are more concerned about the fate of the CFO. Yeah, yeah. That having been said, uh, China's a sophisticated country, and they can walk and chew gum at the same time. They will have noted, not just in their in the embassy, in their foreign ministry, and in their senior uh, officials, party officials that Canadian public views of China have declined precipitously, the positive views, to a level we haven't seen probably since Tiananmen in 1989. They will have taken note of that. I don't actually think their tactics have worked out well for them. And yes, they have two hostages, they have two detainees, um, but the reaction of the Canadian public has not been uh, been one of uh, that will warm their hearts. Just the opposite. The, the views have declined. Usually, American views of China are well below those of Canada. Uh, the opposite is true now. And so I don't think it's worked for them. They, of course, prioritize Manamong's release, but I can't think that they're happy about mm. uh, what's happened. Um, your thoughts, uh, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now um, that uh, the Huawei CFO wrote a note on the Huawei uh, website basically 
uh, thanking Canadians for her treatment and specifically the correctional service people uh, that had treated her so well and all the support that she's received from Canadians and such. And it just seemed to miss the mark. Your thoughts on the reasoning for even doing that and, and did it work? Now, if there weren't two hostages, two detainees in, in, in China, Canadians, I think it might well have worked. It would have been, thank you, Canada, for treating me well while I'm um, wearing this ankle bracelet and going about Vancouver. But the contrast was so clearly drawn between her treatment and those of our two Canadians, yeah. I think it fell quite flat. I think it was part of her father's broader effort of, yes, we may send more work to, to Canada, we may spend more money there, It'll be, we'll be more active. But that contrast, which the media and others have drew immediately between the situation of Kovrig, Spavor, and Madame Mong, that was just too sharp and too obvious. So if I think that reason, it fell flat. How could they have misplayed that so poorly? How could they not have known that Canadians would draw the conclusion about the, uh, the conditions each one is in? Well, I think there's two problems there. One is they certainly have a host of advisors, primarily legal, but others. And if they'd listened to their advice, I can't think that they would have agreed that's a good thing. Um, but China itself is a very different media environment, of course. Uh, much more closed, uh, state-controlled media. Um, that kind of messaging wouldn't have been able to have brought the counter themes that we read in the Canadian media on the airwaves in Canada, right. which were so, so obvious. I think the fact that they're not really good at that is just the nature of who they are in their own system, which is very different. Do they, uh, would they have realized now that, um, that, that uh, the note was offside and that was received the other way? Would they be aware of that? I think so. There is a bit of a problem in their system of, and I've seen this in the past, of where they're representatives and folks, even in Canada, tend to repeat, report back what they think Beijing wants to hear. So that's a problem sometimes. Um, but I think they will have had a sense. They will have seen the, the media reaction. Uh, I think they may be um, recalibrating. Uh, they do have a capacity to learn what works and what doesn't. But their bottom line, really, at the end of the day, is not really focused on popularity of China and Canada. Right now, it's focused on getting Man Among out. Mm. Then they'll turn the hand to the other. Uh, so it's possible for me to know, but there is a problem sometimes. Uh, the folks, even representing Chinese government, tend to tell Beijing what Beijing wants to do. <laughs> uh, so what's next for the two Michaels uh, and, and Canada's reaction to this? Well, I think the... I think it's going to be nuanced because it's not clear precisely where China's headed with this. Uh, they're moving along to another phase. I think they're sensitized to the criticism of our foreign ministry. I hope they are, that there's been no legal access. There's no lawyers uh, been able to access them. If they move to the the beginning of a, of a next phase, particularly a trial phase or an investigation immediately prior to, to trial, whether it be legal access, it, it's neither good or bad. It depends how this ends. If it if it moves forward to a trial and there's a quick trial and they tend to move quickly and they're sentenced, that's not a positive thing. It's not impossible to 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 um, expel them at that point. China, everything's possible in China. Uh, it depends what China's about. And I think the fact that they've been opaque as to what their destination is, whether where China's headed with this is because they don't really know what's going to happen here in Canada. If things move positively, 
the courts dismiss the case. The the judge, extradition judge, says there's no court case to answer. That's always possible. Our minister of justice could, under Article 23.3, simply say, um, "I'm bringing this to an end." Mm-hmm. Uh, that would, in my view, probably lead to a pretty swift end on the other side. Uh, but we don't know that yet. And I think the, the Chinese are keeping all of their options open. Um, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Golden, uh, Gordon Holden has been with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Gordon, fascinating topic we'll be watching. Thanks, uh, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for this opportunity. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've talked at length uh, over the course of uh, various elections about uh, lately about cyber uh, security and interference, foreign interference uh, with Canadian and American elections um, from uh, uh, overseas uh, sources and such. And now a uh, another great article by Sam Cooper, Global News. Canadian eyes only intelligence uh, intelligence reports say Canadian leaders attacked in cyber campaigns. Uh, Russia is one of the hostile foreign states that has targeted Canada in recent cyber influence campaigns, according to secret intelligence records obtained exclusively by Global News. The records from Canada's communication security establishment labeled secret Canadian eyes only say that due uh, to their policies in Eastern Europe, then Minister of Foreign Affairs Christia Freeland and Minister of National Defense Harjit Sajjan are among the Canadians' targets of cyber influence activities to cause reputational damage. To talk more about all of this, the author, uh, Sam Cooper, is with us, Global News, and on the line now. Oh, hang on a sec. And he is with us now. Sam, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So uh, why these two specifically, and how did they find out? How do we know they were targets? That's according to the assessments of these Canadian intelligence agencies that got together to look at threats to our uh, just past federal election. But there was a much broader context to the documents, and they pointed to a number of attacks against Canadian leaders. The only uh, examples that were not redacted were these ones. And uh, so they judged, I I would assume through patterning, I don't know exactly uh, whether they know the IP addresses of certain uh, news agencies in Eastern Europe, but they they judged that these agencies had a very clear campaign that when uh, Minister Freeland was promoted, uh, it was these these stories about her family's history came out, and as happens in dis, disinformation, there's a, there's some truth to the fact that her grandfather was uh, an editor of an, uh, a news media company in the past that had links to the Nazi Party. However, the reports distorted those facts and made it uh, look like the whole family was part of this. And then these reports continued at very strategic times. So that's how they judged it was very likely really because of Minister Freeland's positions uh, on policy specifically, that she has been very in favor of investigating and sanctioning corruption in Russia. When we look at uh, Minister Sajjan, uh, Canada was leading NATO forces in, in Latvia, and uh, when he went over there for a mission of sorts, right away, some reports uh, that were racist in nature, pointing, making fun of his appearance, came out. And so that's how they judge. This is aimed at reputational damage, we don't know how much damage is caused, but we know that uh, the, those influence attempts are out there, and that's just one aspect of a, a broader, broader campaign. How difficult is it to chase this? How difficult is it to e- e- even police this, uh, to, to even figure out who's doing what? 
Uh, it's a great question. We, it, it's a difficult one to answer because uh, to a certain extent, we know that, of course, Canada has counterintelligence, counter-cyber activity against some of these actors. We don't have visibility on exactly what their campaigns are in Canada, how much is spent, but I think it's fair to say that uh, the records say that Canada has to do much more and uh, it makes sense because when you look at that last U.S. Uh, federal election, the, the, the verdict is very clear. There was a massive campaign to sow discord through social media and other means, hacks. And uh, that's a wake-up call for all Western democracies is what I'm getting from these documents. I think it, it's fair to say that it's not just government, but uh, your average citizen that uses the Internet that has to be aware, first of all, that uh, bad information is coming at them from people that have different interests in mind, and also even little things that we most of us know about, like cyber phishing attempts. Clicking on that Ron link can lead to, uh, you know... Uh, wide-scale problems in the country. So this is basically them writing false narratives about whoever to try to corrupt their image, to try to tarnish their image in some way, hoping that social media users or what have you will for- forward this on to other like-minded people. That's right. They, they want to get the information rolling. They want to get it into the echo chamber of social media, as mm. uh, my documents say. And... Uh, it, you know, it's fair to say that disinformation is probably as old as spying itself, which is an ancient industry, but the cyber uh, element is something that that amplification, that increased power, is something that intelligence agencies love to use. And uh, as our experts told us, don't be fooled, Canadian uh, intelligence agencies are online as well, but they are monitored. They can't do the, the, the very bad things that some of these other authoritarian governments can do. There is so much chatter about this, Sam, and, and largely due to, to the work that you're doing here as well in, in, in exposing a lot of this. Are we, are, we, are we getting smarter? Are we becoming more educated? Because, again, um, this is something that, although relatively new, we've been hearing about it now for, for a couple of years. Are, are people becoming more aware, or are they falling for it? Well, uh- that's a great question. You know, I can, uh, I haven't done a study on that, but I think it's fair to say, you know, at the Thanksgiving dinner table or the Christmas dinner table, three years ago, if someone said, hey, have you heard of bots? Uh, no one would have said yes. If that conversation yeah. comes up now and, and you say, oh, hey, do you know what happened in that last U.S. election? I think a few people in the family realize that, and, and especially the, our, our younger generations are hopefully getting very smart to, to online uh, technology and, and terminology. Are we getting smarter? I think it's, uh, I, I feel that um, a part of school curriculum should be more about, you know, critical thinking. We get all of our information from the internet these days, and it's a lot easier to get information on the internet than to get it into a library book. And so in a way, it's, it's easier to be fooled. Yeah, that's very true. You can certainly see that. Um, uh, but but are we learning that if we hear something in uh, or see something in ways that normally we wouldn't have? And I guess this is a generational thing. Wouldn't you just check sources? I mean, is it the normal newscast that you would watch every night that's saying this? Is it the normal source that you would normally read that's saying this? How, you know, uh, as opposed to something off of social media, are, are people running through that checklist or is it we've just become such 
uh, a, a social media driven society that we just assume it's all true. That's uh, that's the I don't know how many billions of dollars are connected to that question. I'm yeah. sure there's studies going on. But uh, I think it, it's fair to say that news, credible news organizations are more you know, attentive to this than ever in being rigorous, in, in checking facts, double checking, triple checking, even thinking about the motivation of people that are coming to us with information. We're very aware now that uh, as we know, as we become aware that intelligence agencies and influence attempts are, are growing, uh, we have to be more diligent in checking information. And I hope that, uh, you know, readers and listeners are aware of that as well and going to good sources. We do the job of telling the stories and telling them this is where the information comes from. Hopefully the readers are doing a little bit of that themselves, too. Uh, Other than obviously credible sources, what advice do you have for users, readers, what have you, viewers who 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 may be confused? I I mean, is it the younger generation who is just so used to using this all the time is the older generation who perhaps can be fooled? Um, What advice do you have for those that are consuming this information? It's a it's a extremely complex question and it's so important. I mean, always you know it's easy to it's easy to hear something and and uh take it down as fact right away but the general points are you know when you hear something is there any motivation behind it look people say follow the money uh, i would tell people if i was t- teaching a little media course when you when you read a story think about the money involved what's at stake think mm. about uh Think about ideology. We, you know, we didn't all study, you know, certain courses in university, but we can all be aware that whenever there's money at stake and politics at stake, there, there are going to be people that are going to try to push you this way and that. Well said. Canadian eyes only intelligent report. Intelligence reports say Canadian leaders attacked in cyber campaigns. The latest from Sam Cooper. You can see it on the Global News website. Sam, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.